I was raised to believe that the Bible is a book of morals, that it defines good versus evil for us within its pages. In the Garden of Eden, however, there were two trees. The tree that brought death was the tree that contained the question of morals, good versus evil. The other tree was a tree that brought life to all the aid of its fruit, the tree of life. Is it possible that we've been asking the wrong questions, chasing the wrong thing by seeking to be moral? Let's run an experiment. Rather than seeking to define and live by good versus evil, let's flip the question. Let's define life instead. But to do that, we must first seek it out. So join us as we Deresh Chai, as we seek life. Hey everybody, welcome to the Deresh Chai Experiment, the show where we use every part of the Bible to determine what exactly the Bible means when a question arises. Well, as we go through the ten words, it has long been recognized in scholarly circles that the first part of this list deals with human relationship with God, how we, as his people, treat him as our God. First, we recognize his actual role. He is God. He is supreme. There is no other. And it's him that created the way for us to be brought out of bondage. The second word covering the fallout from this reality of Hashem as God and Redeemer because of his legitimate position in the world, and more specifically, his position in our lives, then we should not give the honor and respect that is due solely to him to any other being that might catch our attention as worthy. Because any other entity, thing, or ideal that we might seek to put on a pedestal and focus all of our attention on would detract from the life that we can spread by putting that attention on him and his kingdom. The third word then carries on this thought to the next logical step that flows from the second. If we agree that he is God and no other person or thing deserves the honor and worship that we owe to our king, and we take up our role as ambassadors of his kingdom, then it becomes of utmost importance that we act in his character as we approach the world at large. We should never go into the world claiming his name without the accompaniment of his character. Because when we claim him and then don't reflect him, we bring his name and reputation in the eyes of others down to a human and a fallible level. There are countless people who have left the faith because they examine the actions of Christians and those who say that they believe, and they often see only hypocrisy. And we can easily say that those who reject God for this reason, they've put their faith in man and not in God. But the truth is that the way we act tells the world of our God. And if we act contrary to his character and reputation, then we are guilty of showing the world a lesser vision of him. And in the end, we are the image of God with no other images. Images of wood and stone cannot capture his essence. And with this being the case, then often we are the only version of God that many will see or experience in their lives. It is our duty to represent him accurately as his ambassadors. The fourth word then tells us how to begin. Begin in the beginning, the God of creation as told of in Genesis 1 and 2. This God rested on the seventh day. He made the seventh day holy, and in recognition of the God that we serve, we are to keep this day holy as well, as the first line of witness of who he is. Added to this, the Sabbath also reveals that he is a God who redeemed Israel from their labor and their bondage. He is the God who redeemed me and you from our bondage to sin and death. 
He broke chains of oppression and has set us free. And the Sabbath reveals this to the world. We can rest from our labors and spend time with Him because He gave us rest from our labors. And we look forward to the day when creation is set free from the oppression of death. And then for many, the fifth command shifts our view from dealing with God to dealing with humans. But as we have seen, that is not the case. Because if we accept the fact that God is the suzerain high king of all creation, then we recognize that he has set up legitimate authorities that are subordinate to him in our world. And the first line of authority in each of our lives is our parents, those who watch over us from birth and provide for us. We must recognize their God-appointed role and agree or disagree with them, love or hate them. We must show them honor. They are God-appointed by the mere fact that they are our parents. And these roles of God-appointed authorities go beyond parents. Each of us who make it to adulthood passes from the authority of our parents. And when we do, we pass into the authority of other bodies and individuals that also have legitimate authority. The roles of king, judge, priest, and prophet, all ordained by God, all with legitimate power, whether the men or women in these positions abuse that power or not. And so just as we honor our parents, so too we must honor those who occupy the God-ordained positions of authority in the government and the church. And so when we recognize that the fifth command is truly an extension of our worship of God and recognition of his power and authority, then we can see clearly that the first five commands are truly focused on our relationship with God. What was the greatest command according to Yeshua? Deuteronomy 6.4 Hear, O Israel, Hashem our God, Hashem is one, and you shall love Hashem your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your resources. Then the second set of five then deal with how we interact with our fellow man. The beginnings of you shall love your neighbor as yourself. And when we view it this way, we end up with five commands and five commands. And if we contemplate that to its fullness and examine these commands across these lines, we discover that there's something else that is very cool occurring in the Ten Commandments. When we take these sets of five commands, one set focused on God and the other set focused on man, and we examine them in parallel, we discover something astounding. The underlying ideal for each command is the same in both realms. The ways that we approach God and live in relationship with him, if we extrapolate these five ideals into the human realm, we end up with the second set of commands. And so each of these ideals that are spoken of in the second column, they're simply extrapolations of the corollary command from the first so the first word and the sixth word, they contain a singular underlying ideal that connects them. I am Hashem your God who brought you out of Egypt, out of the house of bondage. And do not murder. These two commands work in parallel. And what ideal underlies these two commands? Do not deny the existence of another. In the realm of human interaction, denying another person their existence is to murder them to unjustly take an innocent life that is undeserving of death. Doing this to another denies this person their continued existence in our reality. And the breaking of the first command, it works the same, because this word is a statement of the existence of God. And so transgressing this ideal is a denial 
of the existence of Hashem. It is to say that he does not exist, and in saying this, one participates in the murder of God, both in their minds and in the minds of others. See how this works? Well, it works this way for the rest of the five commands in parallel. Take some time and meditate on them in parallel, and you will discover that there is an underlying ideal that connects each of these commands, and we will speak on each command in order over the next few weeks. It's this that's another piece of evidence that reveals the process of extrapolation that I've been speaking on for the last few months. Discover the connecting ideal in a series of commands, or the connective tissue, as I like to call it, and you will discover what it is that lies at the heart of the command. The spirit of the law will begin to be revealed to you. And so this week, we begin this process with the second half of the Ten Commands. The sixth command. The first of the five that deal with human interaction. Do not murder. So let's open up to Deuteronomy 19 and see how this book extrapolates this particular command. Deuteronomy 19.1 through 21.9 When Hashem your God cuts off the nations whose land Hashem your God is giving you, and you dispossess them and dwell in their cities and in their houses, separate three cities for yourself in the midst of your land which Hashem your God is giving you to possess. Prepare a way for yourself and divide it into three parts, the border of your land which Hashem your God is giving to you to inherit that any manslayer flee there. And this matter of the manslayer who flees there and lives, he who strikes his neighbor unknowingly, not having hated him in time past, even he who goes to the forest with his neighbor to cut timber, and his hand swings a stroke with the axe to cut down the tree, and the head slips from the handle and strikes his neighbor so that he dies, let him flee to one of the cities and live, lest the revenger of blood, while his displeasure is hot, pursue the manslayer and overtake him, because the way is long, and shall strike his being though he was not worthy of death, since he had not hated him before. Therefore I am commanding you, saying, Separate three cities for yourself. And if Hashem your Elohim enlarges your border as he swore to your fathers, and has given you the land which he promised to give to your fathers, when you guard all this command to do it, which I am commanding you today to love Hashem your God and to walk in his ways all the days, then you shall add three more cities for yourself besides these three so that innocent blood is not shed in the midst of your land, which Hashem your God is giving you as an inheritance, or blood guilt shall be upon you. But when anyone hates his neighbor and shall lie and wait for him, and rise against him and strike his being so that he dies, then he shall flee to one of these cities, and the elders of the city shall send and bring him from there, and give him into the hand of the revenger of blood, and he shall die. Your eyes shall not pardon him, but you shall purge the blood of the innocent from Israel, so that it might be well with you. Do not remove your neighbor's boundary, which those in the past have set, in your inheritance which you inherit in the land that Hashem your God is giving you to possess. One witness does not rise up against a man concerning any crookedness or any sin that he commits. At the mouth of two witnesses or at the mouth of three witnesses a matter is established. When a malicious witness rises up against any man to accuse him of turning aside, then both men who have the dispute shall stand before Hashem, before the priests and the judges who serve in those days. And the judges shall diligently search and see if the witness is a false witness, who has falsely accused his brother. Then you shall do to him as he thought to have done to his brother. Thus you shall purge the evil from your midst. And let the rest hear and fear and never again do this evil matter in your midst. And let your eye not pardon life for life, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, hand for hand, foot for foot. 
and when you go out to battle against your enemies and shall see horses and chariots and people more numerous than you, do not be afraid of them, for Hashem your God, who brought you up from the land of Egypt, is with you. And it shall be when you draw near to the battle that the priest shall come and speak to the people, and shall say to them, Hear, O Israel, you are drawing near today to battle with your enemies. Do not let your heart faint, do not fear, or tremble, or be afraid before them. For Hashem your God is he who goes with you to fight for you against your enemies to save you. And the officers shall speak to the people, saying, Who is this man who has built a new house and has not dedicated it? Let him go and return to his house, lest he die in the battle, and another man dedicate it. And who is the man who has planted a vineyard and has not begun to use it? Let him also go and return to his house, lest he die in the battle, and another man should begin to use it. And who is the man who is engaged to a woman and has not taken her? Let him go and return to his house, lest he die in battle, and another man take her. And the officers shall speak further to the people and say, Who is the man who is afraid and tender of heart? Let him go and return to his house, lest the heart of his brothers faint like his heart. And it shall be when the officers have finished speaking to the people that they shall appoint commanders of the divisions to lead the people. When you draw near to a city to fight against it, then you shall make a call for peace to it. And it shall be that if it accepts your call for peace and shall open to you, then all the people found in it are to be your compulsory labor and serve you. But if it does not make peace with you and shall fight against you, then you shall besiege it. And Hashem your God shall give it into your hands, and you shall strike every male in it with the edge of the sword. Only the women and the little ones and the livestock and all that is in the city, all its spoil, you take as plunder for yourself. And you shall eat the enemy's plunder which Hashem your God gives you. Do so to all the cities which are very far from you, which are not of the cities of these nations. Only of the cities of these peoples which Hashem your God gives you as an inheritance, you do not keep alive any that breathe. But you shall certainly put them under the ban, the Hittite and the Amorite and the Canaanite and the Perizzite and the Chivite and the Yebusite, as Hashem your Elohim has commanded you, lest they teach you to do according to all their abominations which they have done for their mighty ones, and you sin against Hashem your God. When you besiege a city for a long time by fighting against it to take it, you do not destroy its trees by wielding an axe against them. If you do eat of them, do not cut them down. For is the tree of the field a man to be besieged by you? Only the trees which you know are not trees for food. You do destroy and cut down it to build siege works against the city that is fighting against you until it falls. When anyone is found slain, lying in the field, in the land which Hashem your God is giving you to possess, and it is not known who struck him, then your elders and your judges shall go out, and they shall measure the distance from the slain man to the cities round about. And it shall be that the elders of the city nearest to the slain man shall take a heifer, which has not been worked and which has not been pulled with a yoke. And the elders of that city shall bring the heifer down to a wadi with flowing water, which is neither plowed nor sown, and they shall break the heifer's neck there in the wadi. And the priests, the son of Levi, shall come near, for Hashem your God has chosen them to serve him and to bless in the name of Hashem. And by their mouth every strife and every stroke is tried. And let all the elders of that city nearest to the slain man wash their hands over the heifer whose neck was broken in the wadi. And they shall answer and say, Our hands have not shed this blood, nor have our eyes seen it. O Hashem, forgive your people Israel, whom you have ransomed, and do not allow innocent blood in the midst of your people Israel. And the blood guilt shall be pardoned to them. Thus you purge the guilt of innocent blood from your midst when you do what is right in the eyes of Hashem. 
1611, the original King James translation of the Bible was published. And in Exodus chapter 20 and Deuteronomy 25, they translated the sixth command in the following way. Thou shalt not kill. And this translation of this verse has led to all sorts of interesting takes on what exactly this command means. For some, this command means that we should not kill anything. We should all become vegan, and even killing a spider or a fly is prohibited by God's word when we view it this way. But if we sit back and examine this honestly, this cannot be the case. The Torah, which gives us this command, also told ancient Israel to kill animals for the purpose of worship. Just a few chapters ago, a man was told that he could kill and eat an animal, including the deer and the gazelle, for food. Surely this is not a prohibition of killing of any sort. And so the next interpretation of this command is that it is a prohibition on killing humans in any way. Other things, okay, fine, you can kill animals, but not any humans. But again, this cannot be the case because we find these other situations also being commanded by Hashem. Israel was commanded to go to war against Sichon and Og, and they won. They are about to enter into the conquest of Canaan and completely destroy the citizens of seven nations. There are commands for capital punishment to be enacted against those who participate in various forms of wickedness and abomination. Now surely this command cannot mean to kill any human for any reason because of the context of the rest of the Torah. And so we arrive at the final interpretation. This command means murder. It means killing without cause and unjustly. To take the life of another who did not deserve to die. And this is a problem for us, because for us, there is a difference in our vocabulary for murder as a premeditated killing of another. But when a man kills another without premeditation, English then uses the vocabulary of manslaughter. Well, in Hebrew, the distinction is not made in this way. The command found in Exodus 20 and Deuteronomy 5 both use the word ratzach, which is the word that's translated as murder or in the KJV and others, kill. In the Hebrew, there is no distinction in the language for a premeditated killing of an innocent human or the accidental killing of an innocent human. Both scenarios are called simply ratzach. But there is another word that is used in Hebrew for killing or slaughter of a person or persons that is justified, and that is harag. And throughout the Bible, we find that the word harag is used three times more often than the word ratzach. Much of the killing of people in Hebrew scriptures appears to be justified as they use the word harag. We find this word used in situations of warfare. The word harag occurs three times in the following two verses, number 31, 7 through 8. And they fought against the Midianites as Hashem commanded Moses, and they killed all the males, and they killed the kings of Midian with the rest of those who were pierced, Avi and Rechem and Sur and Chur and Rivah, the five kings of Midian, and they killed Balaam, son of Beor, with the sword. This word, harag, is used in many cases of general violence leading to death. Exodus 5.21 And they said to them, Let Hashem look on you and judge, because you have made us loathsome in the eyes of Pharaoh and in the eyes of his servants, to give a sword in their hands to kill us. This word is also used in cases of God's judgment on men. Exodus 13.15 And it came to be when Pharaoh was too hardened to let us go that Hashem killed every firstborn in the land of Mitzrayim. 
both the firstborn of man and the firstborn of beast. Therefore I am sacrificing to Hashem every male that opens the womb, but every firstborn of my sons I ransom. And in several places this word is used to describe the killing of an animal for a purpose other than eating, except for a few places in poetry where the word is used in parallel with the word used for slaughter in general, which is yet another word that we're not going to get into. And this word harag, the justified killing of men and animals, is also used in cases of human justice on men in the enactment of capital punishment. But the other word, the word ratzach, this is the word that we are examining because this is what's used in the sixth command. And this word, as I stated earlier, has to do with the unjustified killing of a man. But this word is not reserved for simply murder as we find in chapter 19 of Deuteronomy. This word is also used in cases of manslaughter. This word does not bear any meaning towards the person who engaged in the killing. Rather, this word is solely focused on the victim. Did the victim deserve their death or not? Which is why when we get to this chapter, the manslayer is named the Retzeach. If we are consistent in translation, then this man is a murderer, a man who had killed another man, and that's where it ends. And yet, when it speaks of the avenger of blood killing the manslayer, the word used to describe this event is not the word retzach or any other related word. Instead, it describes this event as the avenger striking the being or the soul of the manslayer. And yet, despite there not being a difference in the vocabulary, we find that there is a difference in intent. While the word used to describe various methods of killing men deal with whether the victim deserved it or not, it's in the text that we find that Hashem does indeed create a distinction based upon the intent of the killer. Did the manslayer intend to kill the victim or not? This is a vital question, one that should be answered by a court. But in the honor-shame society of the ancient Near East, when an innocent man was killed, this created a blood debt that was then owed by the killer. In other cultures, there was no escape for the killer, whether he intended to kill or not. The avenger, usually a close family member, would seek out the killer, and in the eyes of everyone, the avenger was acting in justice when he killed the killer. At least, this was how it was supposed to work. Unfortunately, people being people, these actions often led to the wrong person being killed, or some sort of blood feud erupting between families that went far beyond finding justice. And here at the beginning of chapter 19, we discover that in the ancient Hebrew culture, for the very first time in the world, a distinction was to be made between premeditated murder and simple manslaughter. So while the vocabulary of the situation did not change, the expectations of what was to be done in the case of death did change. A place was made for the killer to escape to, and once there, there was to be an investigation into the matter. If it was discovered that the killer did in fact hate the deceased, then regardless of it being an accident or not, he was to be found guilty and handed over to the avenger. But if it was discovered that the killer bore no animosity to the deceased previous to the killing, and the death truly was accidental, then the killer was to be protected. He could not be killed by the avenger as long as he stayed in the place of protection. And if you'd like to dig into this topic more, the topic of cities of refuge and the manslayer, I covered it in much more detail back in the book of Numbers. 
Moving on, in verse 14, we discover a short verse about not moving your neighbor's boundary marker. Now, this seems a bit out of place, and it truly is out of place, as this particular instruction has nothing to do with killing or murder in any way. In fact, this command would seem to fit squarely under the command of do not steal. What is it doing here? Well, as we move through these final commands, we're going to find scattered throughout each of them a command that falls under the heading of theft. And when we sit back and we think about it, each of the commands here at the end of the ten, they bear a bit of theft within them. This is something that I spoke on several lessons ago, and we're going to dig deeper into this in about two weeks. Moving on into verse 15, we find that in cases of capital punishment, that a minimum of two witnesses is required for the death penalty to be enacted. Anyone who is killed as an act of justice on the testimony of a single person, it's not an enactment of justice. Rather, it is an act of murder on the part of the governing body and the judges that oversee this body. And in verse 16, through the rest of the chapter, we discover a command that would cause a person to sit back and consider yet further whether they wish to witness against another. We read earlier in Deuteronomy that it is the witnesses who were to throw the first stones in cases of capital punishment. The first thing that should cause a person to pause before giving testimony. And this previous description of the role of the witnesses as executioners is situated in the section about the proper exercise of authority. And here we read that if a witness is found to be false, then they are to have done to them whatever the punishment is for the crime that they accused the other of. If you attempt to murder a person by using the court system, then you are to have this death visited back upon you. It is these commands in concert that are to act as guardians of frivolous cases, and it is these commands that are to prevent the person from using the courts as a means of accomplishing personal, business, or political vendettas. Engaging in an action such as this is the equivalent of gauging in murder or theft or any other crime. And so these punishments are to be turned back upon those who would do such things. Unfortunately, even this is not foolproof, as we read of in the story of Jezebel and Naboth, as she used this method, hiring two men as witnesses, in order to kill Naboth and to steal his vineyard for King Ahab in 1 Kings 21. Now the question might come up, but this particular case study would seem on the surface to fall under the command of do not bear false witness, right? Why is it here in the section about murder? And the answer to this is just beneath the surface, and we've already talked about it. This command of what is to happen to those who witness falsely against another is clearly connected to the ninth word of do not bear false witness. But as we just saw, using the courts in this way is tantamount to murder. And so enacting capital punishment against the person who would do this is itself not murder. It's not ratzach, but it is killing, justified, harad. And killing in this way is part of acting in justice. You see, so many of the commands, they overlapped one another in interesting ways. And as we continue this exercise in the upcoming chapters, we're going to discover all sorts of overlap. And when we discover this overlap, we will find that there are many commands given that do not appear in the expansion of the primary command that the command seems to be connected to, as we see here. This command against not bearing false witness would seem primarily to be connected to do not bear false witness. But it's situated here, 
in the place of the underlying ideal of murder because that is the ideal that underlies this command and isn't specifically stated. And expanding the command in this place of the secondary connection then, it helps us to see this command much more clearly and much more nuanced because we can now identify it as connecting to two commands. As we move further into chapter 20, we begin to read about situations of war. And once again, we find that not all killing is forbidden. Otherwise, war would have been forbidden, and yet Hashem commands warfare. The idea that killing is forbidden completely is easily overturned by simply reading the rest of the Bible. Now, as the people prepare for battle, any battle, there are things that are supposed to be accomplished for the sake of the battle, but also to prevent a greater tragedy than losing a battle. The first thing that the priests are supposed to do is to remind the people in the face of overwhelming and frightening odds that Hashem fights for them. They have no need to fear the upcoming battle or to question whether or not they will win. Because the battle is not dependent upon the number or the skill of the men who are fighting the battle. The battle belongs to Hashem. It is His, and He determines the victor. And then the priests are to go one step further. Are you building a house and you haven't finished it yet? Well, go finish your house. Have you planted a vineyard and not yet reaped any of its fruit? Go, tend to your vines. Are you betrothed to a woman and you have not yet married her? Go and fulfill your obligations to her. Are you simply afraid? Then depart in peace. And this command flies directly in the face of every convention and expectation of man. Already it has been acknowledged that they will be facing a superior force, and yet the commanders give reasons for anyone who has something more pressing to leave. What the heck is more pressing than winning a battle in anyone's mind? What kind of commander dismisses troops before fighting overwhelming odds? Why would anyone do this for these reasons in particular? And the answers to these questions, they're all wrapped up in each other. The first thing to notice is that the armies of Israel in the scenario are already facing down a superior force. They are already short-handed. And yet this command is given that even in this situation, some who find themselves in other various situations of life should be allowed to leave rather than to fight. The underlying ideal here being that if you do not allow them to leave, then you are murdering them. And so let's begin looking through these. And let's begin with the final person, the, the person who is afraid. This person is to be allowed to leave. And the reason is simple. A person who is afraid does not believe in the surety of the victory. Their concern is rather for their own personal existence and not the thing that the battle will accomplish. And so, at the first sight of personal injury, their fear will spread. It only takes one soldier turning his back on the enemy and running before entire companies of men join in the fight. Fear is, as Frank Herbert says, the mind killer. It causes a person to stop thinking and to begin reacting. And when reacting in fear, a person is incapable of making wise decisions. So that one is simple. But what about the others? What about the house or the vineyard or the marriage? And once again, we find that the ways of God are higher than the ways of men. Men would hold on to every person that they could in the face of overwhelming odds. 
But what we see here is an example of Hashem's care for the concerns of individuals. Now we've read elsewhere of Hashem's concern for the vulnerable. And when we read through the usual classes of vulnerable, we consider the poor, the orphan, the widow, and the ger, the ones that are mentioned over and over throughout the Torah, the four most common types of vulnerability in the ancient Near East. But here we encounter another type of vulnerability, and we see once again a commentary on personal legacy. You see, each of these three things, they are things that can outlast a person once they reach a certain stage. But getting to that stage, it takes time and energy from the person who is accomplishing the task. Building a house? If a man stops in the middle to go off to war and then he is killed, then the house is never completed. Or if it is completed, it's done so by another person who profits from the death of the original builder. And in at least that man's mind, their death is seen as a good thing. Or planting a vineyard. If a man leaves his vineyard before it bears its first crop, then the plants can easily die. Even if the man does return from the war, the vineyard will be ruined, and all of the care and work that is put into the project, it'll be wasted. It's common knowledge that wars in the ancient Near East happened in the summer, the time of war. You don't fight in the winter. And so when you fight, you're fighting at the time when a vineyard needs the greatest amount of care and needs to be tended in order to ensure the success of the produce especially on a brand new vineyard. And the man who is betrothed to a woman? Well, in the ancient Near East, the moment that a man and a woman were betrothed, they were considered married for all intents and purposes. They just didn't live together or consummate their relationship at that point. And so the expectation is that the covenant of marriage will take precedence. The man should go and marry the woman, and then he gets to spend a year at home with his wife, we're going to find out later, in order to start their family before he then becomes eligible for battle again. But if a man died during this point of engagement, then his betrothed is considered a widow, and the line of this man would end on the battlefield with his death. In each of these situations, the item that is to be tended to is something that will add to the legacy of the man. It's something that will enrich his family and provide for them long after he is gone. But there is something more than simply protecting the legacy of the man that's at play here. There is the healthy measure of demonstrating the character of God. And when God provides for men, and when he commands that people be provided for, what are the three things that he provides? Food, clothing, and intimacy. Now we saw this clearly all the way back in Exodus 21, just after the ten words were initially given, near the beginning of the Ketuvah between Israel and Hashem. Exodus 21, 10-11 If he takes another wife, her food, her covering, and her marriage rights are not to be diminished. But if he does not do these three for her, then she shall go out for nothing without silver. A woman who is not favored by her husband is to have her basic needs cared for. Food, shelter, which is sometimes simply clothing and sometimes housing throughout Scripture, and intimacy that provides life. And we see this in other places in Scripture, but perhaps none as poignant as in Matthew chapter 6. Matthew 6, 25-33, Because of this I say to you, do not worry about your life, what you shall eat or drink, or about your body, what you shall put on. Is not life more than the food, and the body more than the clothing? 
Look at the birds of the heavens, for they neither sow nor reap nor gather into storehouses, yet your heavenly Father does feed them. Are you not worthy more than they? And which of you by worrying is able to add one cubit to his lifespan? So why do you worry about clothing? Note well the lilies of the field, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin, and I say to you that even Solomon in all his glory was not dressed like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass of the field, which exists today and tomorrow is thrown into the furnace, how much more you, O you of little faith? Do not worry then, saying, What shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or what shall we wear? For all these the nations seek for, and your heavenly Father knows that you need all these. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these shall be added to you. We see it clearly here. Do not worry about food or how you are going to shelter your body from the elements. Seek intimacy with Hashem first, and he will ensure that you have these things. And what we read here in Deuteronomy 20 is just that. It is Hashem ensuring that these things are provided for his people. And those who are doing the providing in the community, well, they are to be protected because their work is precious to the community at large. And so these individuals are not to have their lives potentially wasted on a battle which has a foregone conclusion. You're going to win with Hashem on your side, but not everyone's going to make it back home. Instead, let those who are at a critical juncture in provision for family and society let them continue their work until their work has reached a place of stability and ongoing legacy. Because it's not the number or the strength of your army that's going to win a battle. The battle belongs to Hashem. And when you get into the conquest, you come to one of their cities to take it. First, offer it peace. Offer them their lives. They can live as your servants if they surrender now. But if you are forced to fight against them, then you are to kill every male, no matter how old. Now this seems like a very immoral and brutal thing for Hashem to command, but we must remember that the age that we're dealing with. In the ancient Near East, blood feuds were not only common, but they were demanded by the culture. If shame was visited on your family, then you owed it to your family honor to repay that shame. And there is nothing more shameful than losing a battle and being enslaved. And so this action of killing the young boys is a protective measure against future slave rebellion and vengeance as the children of the defeated would seek to rise up and repay the family shame. And for the seven nations of Canaan that are to be wiped out, for them there is no escape. Everyone in the city is to be destroyed, just as in Sodom and Gomorrah. And the term used for this idea that everyone is to be destroyed, we have to go back to Leviticus 27, to read this word and what it means. Leviticus 27, 29. No one under the ban, uh, charam being the word there, under the ban among men is ransomed, but shall certainly be put to death. These cities, the cities of these seven nations, they are to be put under the ban. There's no ransom that can spare them. There's no peace with the inhabitants of these cities. Now, yes, this seems brutal in our nice and comfy Western world, but we're going to discover later that there are things that our world calls evil, and living through them feels like evil. But they are necessary, and it's Hashem who knows when to use these things to bring about things of life.
but that is a lesson for another day. And so to close chapter 20, commands are then given that when a city is put under siege and Israel goes about building siege engines, the trees that produce fruit are not to be used in the siege. The idea here being, don't destroy the future welfare of your people for the sake of winning a battle in the moment. In fact, that could be said to be an underlying theme throughout this whole chapter. Don't destroy the future of those around you for the sake of winning this immediate battle. Another thought that could be used to describe this command is a recognition that your war is not against the trees. It's against the inhabitants of the city. Don't destroy more than necessary in the pursuit of this victory. Scorched earth serves no one. And I feel as if this is the kind of command that shouldn't have to be stated, but alas, history is rife with examples of armies destroying every means of production, from factories to fields to workers, in their pursuit of victory over their enemies. And finally, in chapter 21, the topic arises of what should happen in the case of the death of a person by unknown means. That dead body in the woods, or found floating in a river, or just lying in a field. And this uh, passage, it contains some instructions that are a bit confusing. First off, the distances between the surrounding cities are to be measured in order to figure out which city is the closest to the dead body. Then the elders from that closest city are to take a female heifer to a wadi that has water in it, and they're to, in my translation, break the neck of the heifer. And the elders of the city are to then wash their hands in the wadi that has the dead heifer in it. Finally, they declare essentially, I didn't do it, and I don't know who did, so please don't hold it against us. And thus they are to clean away the innocent blood from the land. And we scrunch up our faces and we sit and think for a while before finally throwing up our hands in frustration and asking, What? What the heck is going on here? How does breaking the neck of a cow in a stream wash away the innocent blood from the land? This makes no sense to the carnal mind. Well, Rashi has this to say about this ritual. He says, The Holy One, blessed be he, said, A yearling heifer, which hath borne no fruit, shall come and be beheaded in a place which yieldeth no fruit, to atone for the murder of the man whom they did not suffer to bear fruit. And yes, the Hebrew word translated as break the neck can also mean to cut off the head at the neck. So beheading the oxen or bull is an option in translation, as well as slitting its throat. Now, some commentators believe the place that this was to occur was in a place which had never been a field or had produced fruit. However, there are some commentators who believe that this place in which the ritual was occurred was to then never have the field worked any time in the future. Because the word used for this part of the command, it's in the imperfect tense, meaning that it is not complete, it's not finished. So it's not saying that it's land that has never been sown. Rather, it's land that has never been sown and will never be sown. Now, others think that this exercise was given as a means of stimulating the town elders to be more faithful in their duties to find the killer and to protect the people under their care. Now, still other commentators point out that the heifer had worn no yoke, which was emblematic of the killer who had thrown off the yoke of the Torah. And still others say that this was a type of Yeshua, since the heifer was put to death at the instigation of the Jewish elders, and Pilate washed his hands to then expiate himself from the death of Yeshua. 
Now, frankly, this is one of the more confusing rituals that's contained in the Torah, and that is saying a lot. What effectiveness it might have in washing away the innocent blood of a slain man, that is beyond me. My initial thought was to attempt to connect this ritual to the red heifer sacrifice, but the only connection to the sacrifice is the use of a heifer that's never been used as a work animal, and the result of expunging the uncleanness of death. With the red heifer, death was cleaned off a person, but with this ritual, innocent death is cleaned from the land. Other than that, this ritual is wholly unique. What does it mean? How does it accomplish? Well, this is one of those times that being an ancient Hebrew would probably serve us better. Not concerned with mechanisms or the how of the matter, rather primarily concerned with function. And if we look to the function of this ritual, we find that the function is to cleanse innocent blood from the land. It says it in verse 9. Thus you purge the guilt of innocent blood from your midst when you do what is right in the eyes of Hashem. And with that, we reach the end of this Parsha. This word or ideal, it's the ideal that leads to all other ideals. Do not deny the life of another unless matters of justice or warfare demand it. In fact, we could say that the entirety of the five words that are directed towards interpersonal relationships begin here. Think about it for a second. The first word, I am Hashem your God, is the foundation of the entirety of the ten words. We have no reason to follow these commands unless we can first agree to this initial opening statement. And when we examine these ideals in parallel, we discover that the first word and the sixth word are connected through the idea of not denying the existence of another. And so from there, we can discover that the first way to love our neighbor is to not deny their existence. And all of the other words flow from this one. You must first recognize the existence of another person before you can engage in any other transgressions against them. You must recognize the existence of another person before you can truly love them. And from this, we very clearly see that life undergirds it all. Respecting the lives of others, respecting the existence of God, not denying this precious gift from another, unless they demand it through some egregious transgression against another. And from this, we get another data point in this grand experiment. Life is the foundation. Life is the goal. Life is the means by which we accomplish the gospel of the kingdom. And it is life that we look to foster in the world around us. And taking the life of another is one of the greatest transgressions a person can commit against anyone, just as denying the Creator is the beginning of wickedness. Life is precious. But one thing that we cannot do is confuse the continuance of life in this body with the life that Hashem has for us. Because this life, this existence, is not the end. And this life, this existence, is not the goal. True life is found beyond this flesh. So respect life. Love life. Seek life. But don't hold on to your life too tightly. Be prepared to let this life go in the knowledge that true life awaits you on the other side. Deresh Chai
Shalom. Thank you for tuning in to Derek's Kai. If you would like to find out more or support this ministry, head over to SeekLifeSC.com. That's SeekLifeSC.com. The music was provided by the Exodus Road Band. Check them out on iTunes or ExodusRoadBand.com. We'll see you again next time as we dare Shai, as we seek life. Shalom.